Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. Joining me today is Rebecca Chalp with a storied academic career as the 18th and first female chancellor of the University of Denver, former president of Swarthmore College and Colgate University, and dean and professor of theology at Yale Divinity School. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Mel. Rebecca, a profile in the Chronicles of Higher Education capsulized your career in a very poignant way with a headline that read, The Reinvention of Rebecca Chop. She built a life around a profession that prized the mind. Then she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. What was your life plan before and how did it change with the diagnosis? You know, I, I had an extraordinary path. I mean, I was a rural kid, first person who graduated from college. Parents didn't even want me to go to college, didn't think girls needed to. And time and time again, I got these fabulous opportunities. I was professor at Emory and then provost at Emory. And then, as you said, dean. And and I re-upped three times as president. So, you know, I lived the life of the mind in the academic world. And I was absolutely determined to continue that. I loved it. I relished in it and flourished in it. I was going to keep it DU for another five years. I had been there for five. We had a beautiful strategic plan. Our admissions were growing. We were building some new buildings. And then I figured I would step back and go back on the faculty and do a profession I truly love teach. So at the end of year five, I was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, you know, I thought I would be immediately a body without a brain. So I had to step away. I couldn't put the university in that position and I had to remove stress. So my life turned upside down from working 18 hours, 16 to 18 hours a day, many days, all of a sudden, I was retired without having any plans. Smart people are known to hide out in the disease for years. Can you share the behaviors and early symptoms that prompted you to speak with your primary care physician? I think I am a great example of what should be the case. I went to my primary care physician for an annual physical. I did not think about having any symptoms. Now my husband and I can look back and realize I had some. But she was the primary care physician everybody should have. She asked me how I was doing. I said, I was doing well. Everything was great. I was even finally sleeping because I had gone for years and years sleeping four or five hours a night. And I told her then laughing that I had gotten lost on the way to her office. She asked me if it'd be okay to give me a little cognition test. And I, you know, I laughed again thinking, "Ah, I mean, I passed every test I've ever taken. And then she saw this mixed result on this test. So I actually didn't have the forgetting, you know, what day it was or anything. I was not progressed 
that much. I was progressed after they did the scans and after nine months of testing, they definitely said it was Alzheimer's. But how fortunate I was to be caught in a very early stage. So what is your message to physicians with a somewhat of a paternalistic philosophy? Well, if you can't treat, don't tell. Well, number one, that's factually incorrect. They can treat. They can treat through lifestyle intervention. There's diet, there's exercise, there's social engagement, there's creativity work. There is much we know. We know a lot about keeping people healthy. And we know that will delay the progress of the symptoms for many, many people. Similar, but a little different than what they tell people with heart problems. And soon there will be drugs. There are now promising drugs that need, of course, Medicare approval to support. So number one, that's just wrong. That's bad science. And number two, I believe it's morally wrong to know something and not tell people. They aren't God doctors. They need to give the news. For too many of us, there is high anxiety about actually getting Alzheimer's, especially if we've seen it in our family. How does one balance the anxiety and fear of the need to know and those who prefer not to know? Well, it's scary. I talk in my book, which is going to be called Not Your Grandmother's Alzheimer's, how deeply scared I was of getting Alzheimer's after both my grandmothers and my mother had it. I was terrified in my small town, rural Kansas culture of what they called going mad. I was terrified of it. So I understand the anxiety. But ignorance becomes a prison, right? I mean, I get the anxiety and we have to understand the anxiety and breathe deeply. But knowing allows you to have these interventions, to spend quality time with your family, to be able to give back, to become an advocate for Alzheimer's. If that anxiety becomes a prison, you're ruining your chance to let your family and you have time together. That's one of the reasons I had to step down. I wanted to spend time and I wanted to make sure my husband and child and sister and brother, that we all had time together. You stepped down, as you mentioned, in 2019 as the chancellor at the University of Denver. Did the classic stereotypes about people with Alzheimer's affect how people began to interact with you? Yes, those classic stereotypes. My grandmothers, right? I mean, I had it. I had the stigma inside of me. You know, one of my grandmothers kind of sat in this wheelchair, kind of not aware of the world. The other grandmother who had a more severe onset, a quicker onset, was kind of tied to her bed for many years. So people carry those stigmas. And they carry that stigma that you mentioned about the doctor, the paternal doctor. There's nothing you can do. So yes, I want to first give a shout out to the many, many people, including my board chair and the entire board at the University of Denver. When I told them, they cried and they offered support. But I also had people who denied it. I had people who acted like already I was like my grandmother. I had one person who kept raising his voice to me. I finally had to say with all good sense of humor, 
I may be losing my mind, but I'm not going deaf, (laughs) right? I had other people talk only to my husband. I had a board I was on ask me to stop being on the board. So I think that stigma is wide. I think it's deep in our culture. And I think it is yet another reason people don't want to tell. You know, it's like all mental disorders, neurological disorders, people are, are supposed to be ashamed of having it. When you have cancer, you don't feel ashamed saying, you know, I have cancer. You may not want to tell what type of cancer is, but when you have Alzheimer's, it's similar to when you have a mental disease that's schizophrenia or something like that. You somehow feel it's your fault. That's broad in the culture. So yes, some people treated me differently, but thankfully many people did not. So what advice would you give to those of us in the audience who really don't know how to approach a friend or deal with it if they come upon it? Well, first of all, I appreciate it when people ask me how I'm doing. You know, maybe not broadcast it in the middle of a party, but in a one-to-one conversation or a small four or five people around a dinner or a phone call, even people I don't know well, when they get that really caring voice, like they really want to know, how are you doing? And I think that's, for me, an opening to talk about what I'm experiencing. It's a bonding. All of a sudden, I don't have someone just dismissing me with a stigma. I have a companion on my journey with me. So I think recognizing it, accepting it, asking people how they're doing is so important. We've both had a history in our families of the disease, and the fact is that there are no two cases that are exactly alike, and the rate of progression varies widely. Where are you now clinically in the disease, and more importantly, how do you feel? You know, I, I'm, I'm still in the early stages, so probably I... I have seen and stay in contact with several neurologists. Some say, you know, they would, most of them say, I'm still in the kind of right as you move from mild cognitive impairment to more advanced Alzheimer's. I feel pretty good. I work very, very hard. My neurologist who officially entered it in my medical record told me to live with joy. And then she told me to work out two hours a day do exercise, eat right, you know, the the classical interventions. And I do all that, and it's a kind of full-time job. So I feel pretty good. I will say the hardest thing for me is I get so tired. It doesn't take much social engagement or much being on or much stimulation to get exhausted. The book I'm working on, I can write about three hours a day. If I exercise first and get all those chemicals going in my brain, which is proven to help people pay attention, but after that, I'm I'm gone. So, you know, I used to love to paint, and I still paint some, but it's very hard to write 
in the morning and try to paint in the afternoon. So that, so the exhaustion, I sleep nine, 10 hours a night. That's the heart. And then, you know, I forget, you know, I can't remember. I can go downstairs to get something downstairs four times before I remember what it is. Well, you're not alone, Rebecca. <laughs> Many of us worry when that happens. What are your insights? What insights have you gained versus what you've lost? You know, short-term memory. Are there insights that you have gained in this disease? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly spiritual person, like many right now in our culture, not overtly religious in terms of identifying myself too narrowly. But I think this disease has made me spend a lot of time contemplating. And I talk about abiding in, in the universe. I talk with some of the other people I know who have Alzheimer's, and we're very careful about this because you don't want to sound like there's any goodness tied with this disease. But I think in any kind of terminal illness, when you know you're going to have some years where you're not in intense pain, where you're not dependent, there comes a wisdom. There comes a thankfulness to be able to be with families and friends, a peacefulness about abiding in the light. Now, at the same time, I've had, you know, what, what Jews and Christians call lamentation. I mean, I scream at God and cry and, and have anguish. But that is minimized, and I spend more time abiding, as I call it. So that and then connection, connection with family. And I think the third thing I would say is I, I took my doctor's prescription or orders very seriously, but I reframed them as gifts. Instead of thinking, oh, no, I have to exercise, I, I, I feel it is a gift. <laughs> it is a gift that keeps my Alzheimer's or in my childlike fear, my madness at bay. So I took a painting. What a gift. I'd never painted before. I took up exercise. I got a dog. I kind of used it as an excuse with my husband to get a puppy. And now I have this service slash companion who helps me exercise and cuddles with me. So I think that's the insight. Number three is reframe all these things about, oh my God, I got to do this to live a little bit longer or live a little bit better, but I'm still going to die. Reframe them as real gifts of joy. Do you find a distinct dichotomy between what the scientists view as clinical meaningfulness when the FDA reviews a potential disease-modifying therapy and what matters most to patients like you? I would say after conversations with so many who have Alzheimer's, and I helped co-found a group called the Voices of Alzheimer's, as you know, which is for people with Alzheimer's. I would say almost all of us are adamant that we are far more willing to try to take risks with those clinical trials and with those drugs. 
you know, every, what, how many seconds, 90 seconds, somebody moves into the advanced stages. We don't want to move into those advanced stages before we have to. We are all experiencing this joy. I would also say that every person I know with Alzheimer's, you know, who I talk, talk with, and I don't know that many, but I know quite a few, we are happy to be the guinea pigs for the trials, or even if those trials aren't 100% effective for the next generation. We don't want our children and our grandchildren, all of whom now have a greater chance to have this. So I, I you know, I, I, you know, I was in big school and schools with medical centers. I get the conservatism. But when you're the patient, it's a very different experience. I think for most of us who are advocates who have the disease in our family, it becomes a legacy issue. You don't want to burden the next generation. Absolutely. And the next generation for our generations, but around the world, I mean, you know, 90% of the people who have Alzheimer's are not white, Caucasian, high-educated people like we are. So I want to, I want to help their children. So you have said that your goal is to live well despite being diagnosed with a terminal illness. You have reframed the name of your book from Art, Spirit, Body, Ways to Live While Dying with Alzheimer's to It's Not My Grandmother's Alzheimer's. Why is it so important to you not to sugarcoat the tragedy of this disease? That's a good question. I mean, I guess maybe... Personality-wise, I'm a realist. Not a pessimist, but I am a realist. But, you know, deeper than that, this is a tragic disease. And as you know, it is not just tragic for the person who has Alzheimer's. It's for my husband who will watch me. It's for my 46-year-old son, who's my second caretaker, who will watch me. I mean, you and I have watched our mothers and you, your spouse. It is a horrible thing to watch the progress of Alzheimer's. We can't sugarcoat it because it's an extremely expensive disease. I, I can't believe that uh, if you actually compared what it would cost Medicare to what it cost, the compilation of all the families <laughs> who have to take care of people, most of them in their home because memory care is expensive, you know, I think Medicare the Medicare payments would be cheaper, but I get the deference of how that works. So, yeah, I think it's important. This is, a, you know, maybe someday we will feel more optimistic about it. Like I feel more optimistic about it when many of my friends tell me they have cancer. Now, there are sometimes stage four or whatever, or, or they have to have a heart transplant or something. I mean, we know those are now successful and they weren't once weren't at all. The treatment wasn't. But now there's higher treatment. When there is higher treatment, I will quit. When there is better treatment, higher rates of success, I will quit. <laughs> I may sugarcoat. Oh, it's not that big thing. But right now, it's a big thing. Rebecca, it's been a true honor to have you here as a staunch advocate for Voices of Alzheimer's as our guest. Her book, Still a Work in Progress, is It's Not My Grandmother's Alzheimer's, 
That's it for this edition. Join us next time in part two of our conversation with noted Yale theologian Rebecca Chop as she shares her spiritual journey through this fatal disease. Augustine, Christian theologian, liked to say that freedom was moving from sin to love. So many times we think freedom is just being freed from something. But but I think it's, for me, it's been being liberated from this constant prison of thinking, oh, now I'm mad, to the reinvention of living with joy. One final thought. Like Rebecca, those living in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease are pushing us all to reconsider how we think about mild cognitive impairment and why those with early-stage disease must be respected and not marginalized by a diagnosis. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Our team is on a mission to help you stay up with the latest scientific breakthroughs, from new therapies to technologies on early diagnosis and personal brain health advice from well-known experts using an equity lens that promotes brain health for all. Now, we'd like to hear what's on your mind. What are the topics and guests you'd like to hear featured on Brainstorm? Send your comments to brainstorm at usagainstalzheimers.org. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us on the first and third Tuesday of every month.